0: Thank you, Carolyn, and good morning again. <clears throat> when I go backpacking, uh, which doesn't happen as much anymore, little, little kids at home, but when I go get a chance to go for a few days and kind of leave the cell phone behind and just get out somewhere where you can go and carry what you need with you and just unplug for a little while, when I have a chance to do that, I like to go with a friend. Or a couple of friends and uh, the reason is because I like to have someone to argue with when I'm lost anyone ever been there so it's more fun if you can argue with someone else instead of just having to argue with yourself uh, and then there's someone else to blame and it kind of goes around because even when you have a good map and you're headed out in places you've never been before you can kind of see how it looks on the map but you're not exactly sure if that's the trail or if that used to be the trail, there's a new trail somewhere else, or if you're generally in the right vicinity or not, so of where you need to be. So it's nice to just have somebody to bounce ideas off of and say, well, you know, does it seem like to you that this matches what we see on the map? And then they say no, and I'll say, well, it kind of does to me. And then we sit there and argue about it. So uh had a couple of friends. Now, that that is a little harder when it's your wife who's a friend with you on the trip. Uh, and uh, you know, Amberly and I went on our 10th anniversary and did such a, Trip And those arguments are not as much fun, but uh, they, they still were fruitful and got us where we needed to go. Point is, uh, we all appreciate a companion or two on the journey, especially when we're headed somewhere we've never been before. When we're going through uncharted territory, it's good to have some people to lean on, some people to follow at different times. You know, sometimes walking with a companion, you'll take turns being the leader, being the one that makes the hard decisions. Being the one that goes a few steps ahead and in bearing the brunt of that decision-making process, that discernment process. So uh, going places you've never been, it's just good to have a companion. And when I look at this scripture text that Carolyn read for us, I think of Jesus as that kind of companion for us. What Jesus does in the wilderness after his baptism makes possible the things that we are called to in this world as Christians. Without Jesus going before us and showing us the way, we wouldn't be able to do what we're called to do, which would be a really frustrating way to live. And so Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan where he's baptized, and he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What? Led by the Spirit into the wilderness? Isn't the Holy Spirit just supposed to take you to high and lofty and wonderful places? What's all this about going to the desert, to the wilderness, where things are hard? And on top of that, if the desert's not hard and scary enough, there to meet him after 40 days of difficulty is the devil. To offer these historic, monumental temptations. So we take a look at that together today. And I just have to tell you that this sermon has evolved. And when I say evolved, that's a fancy word for saying it got thrown away and rewritten yesterday. We've had a few things that have happened since this sermon was put on the schedule. Uh, some of these things we're really excited about, like a baptism. And some of these things we're not excited about, like people that we've lost in our community. And uh, a house that we've lost in our community. and. It just didn't seem like the right sermon. Because the first sermon that I wrote was essentially saying, now remember when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and the Holy Spirit leads him there and he withstands these temptations, we're looking specifically at ministry things, things that are hard because you're in ministry, not things that are hard just because we're human beings living in a fallen world. But since that time, it's changed and Now we're faced a little more immediately with some of those things that are just hard because we live in a fallen world and not necessarily the result of us being in ministry, being baptized Christians. So we're going to change the angle just a little bit. We're going to walk with Christ into the desert. And, you know, when I think of Jesus and his mission, what he's baptized and anointed for, essentially the life of Christ is about loving God. Loving his father, right? He's always relating to God in prayer and saying in Luke's gospel, well, I only do what I see my father doing. Yeah, there's a million things I could be doing, but I'm paying attention to what God has me doing, and that's what I'm going to do. That's my mission. And in addition to loving God, Jesus loves his neighbors. He loves his disciples, and he loves those that come to him who are demon-possessed, who need healing. He loves those who are like sheep without a shepherd. He loves those who are in need of a physician, who are sick, who are soul-sick. He loves those kind of people. So Jesus loves God and he loves neighbor, which makes him the perfect and worthy candidate to invite us to love our God and to love our neighbors as sort of our comprehensive summary mission in the world. So the life of Christ is about loving God and loving neighbor. The work of the devil is about keeping Christ from loving God and keeping Christ from loving his neighbor and therefore also The work of the devil is to keep us from loving God and to keep us from loving our neighbors. And as we encounter that resistant work in the world, again, we have confidence and we have a guide on the path because of how Jesus handled this opposition. Remember our ancestors who walked into the wilderness and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after sort of their baptism. Remember their baptism with the Egyptians close behind, and as they're brought through the waters of the Red Sea and they're delivered, they are saved, their next 40 years are all about wandering, all about being tested in the wilderness. And largely, they failed their test. There was much complaining, there was idolatry, there was putting God to the test. There was all these things that happened in the wilderness that where they didn't really complete their training. It was like they bailed early on boot camp. And so they just had to keep wandering and keep wandering. So when Jesus is baptized and he comes through his Red Sea, he wanders into the wilderness led by the Spirit and begins to do these 40 days of work where he is successful, where our ancestors were the Israelites failed, Jesus is successful, and he withstands the temptations of the devil and teaches us along the way. Christ's endurance in the wilderness has made our endurance in our wilderness possible. Jesus' faithfulness in the wilderness has made our faithfulness in the wilderness possible. This makes Jesus a trusted guide for the journey, a companion. And so my prayer today is that we would learn from Jesus as we seek to love God, as we seek to love our neighbors in this life where we experience the fullness of both joy and sorrow. So i like to frame these three temptations and the lessons that Jesus teaches us and invites us to in this text, I'd like to sort of frame that with the obstacles or the temptations that we face as we are trying to love God and trying to love our neighbor. What obstacles do we face as we seek to love God and we seek to love our neighbor? I'm borrowing some of this language from uh, Henry Nouwen, who was a, uh, a, a spiritual writer in the whole 1980s and 90s, uh, who was a Catholic priest who was a professor at Harvard and a professor at Yale and then spent the remainder of his life living with and working among uh, severely mentally handicapped adults. And uh, so he wrote many of his books from that perspective. And so some of this language about sort of categorizing these temptations I've borrowed and learned from Henry Allen. The first temptation in The Ryan Striebeck translation, when we're trying to love our neighbors in hard times, is the temptation is to fix it. The temptation is to fix it, to just make it better immediately, right? To just make a call, do a thing that just fixes it, just makes it all advice, things, let's just fix it. Or we are tempted to just fix our neighbor, tempted to fix the one that we're trying to help and do for them what we think they need immediately. This comes to Jesus in the form of, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Obviously, there's starving people in the world. There's plenty of stones around. Why don't you just fix it, Jesus? Why don't you just fix everything? Why don't you just make it happen right now? Immediate fix for the needs of the world. Now, was Jesus all about meeting people's needs? Absolutely. Are we called as Christians to meet people's immediate needs? Absolutely. But to think that we can fix it on our own is a very problematic impulse. So what Jesus responds to the devil with is, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's his way of saying, we will be nourished by the word of God. Our neighbors will be nourished by the word of God. That there is a word of God for every season. We will be nourished by these words and not by our accomplishments, not by having all the answers. We will be nourished by a timely word in season. There are words from God for every season of life. And anytime we gather in a room this size, we represent all of those seasons of life. So there is a word for every season. In fact, the words of God are multifaceted, so there is a word that fits every season, sometimes at the same time, that we hear in our own place with what we need the most, the word of God that nourishes us, that helps ferry us through this life, through the wilderness, through difficulty, through the pain and suffering and joy and triumph of our neighbors. The second temptation that comes to Jesus is immediate glory. The way and says it is to be powerful, to demonstrate the power that is at your disposal. Friday right? took him up, and if you can imagine, I love the way that this is put. He, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. Everything that's available in terms of power that's ever been, if you could see it all at once in one moment, and capture it and imagine it if you could be the most powerful person ever and change everything and do everything you wanted to do. And in that moment, Jesus resists and says, I'm not going to get glory that way. For you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus shows us and tells us here that there are no shortcuts to glory. Shortcuts to glory in the life of Christ look like clinging and striving for power and glory. We sometimes forget that glory is bestowed. It's not taken. It's not grasped. And in the kingdom of God, glory is always on the other side of a cross. So the call, the invitation, when faced with such a temptation, is worship worship where we offer ourselves as paul said as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god we give all that we are in exchange for the hope of all that god is we lay our lives on the altar and we ask for the glory of god to be manifested among us in our lives that we might be transformed that we might be strengthened, that we might be bearers of light, bearers of glory, light in a dark world, right, a city on a hill, and that we might go the way that Christ went, the difficult journey, going through suffering, through a cross, waiting all the time, every time we wake up, every time we pray, every time we sing, anticipating the reality of the resurrection, the long way around. And finally, sort of the climactic temptation. Luke does something a little different. When Matthew uh, tells this story, he reorders them a little bit, or Luke reorders them from Matthew, or however you want to see it. Uh, but Luke switches the last two, and he makes the climactic temptation this scene in the temple. And we think that's probably because Luke's gospel ends in a scene from the temple. And so the temple's coming into view and this sort of major temptation comes on the scene. And, and the devil in his work, in his crafty work, he just empties both barrels here. And the way he does that is he quotes scripture to Jesus, All right? He says, Hey, remember that old psalm in your Hebrew prayer book? Remember that prayer that you learned to pray? Jesus as a kid, how? God will command his angels concerning you. He'll take care of you. Those angels will come along and I almost said them angels. That would be like the most redneck thing I've ever said from the pulpit. Uh, Those angels will come and they'll gather you up and they'll hold you up and and they'll keep you from crashing and burning. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, yeah, but you got to keep reading the psalm. You're quoting that thing out of context. Remember that part in that same psalm where it tells us that we will stomp on the head of the serpent? That we can trust the promises of God. So Jesus turns this on its head, but before he does that, I think the translation for me, for get up here on the highest point of the temple and just throw yourself down, Is the temptation in ministry and loving our neighbors to do something spectacular. To do something amazing. Everyone wants to just do, to be said of them, they're like, oh, they just did that amazing thing. Their Sunday school class was amazing. That sermon was amazing. The way that they did this or that was amazing. That thing was amazing. We all, I mean, that makes you feel good, right? All of us. And so it's a natural thing to want. But it becomes a real devastating thing. When it drives us and just the hunt and the search for the next being, the next amazing thing will lead only to destruction. Jesus knows this. And so he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. We learned this in the wilderness. Don't test God. Don't take that way about it. It's not about being spectacular. And just the fact that God could, yeah, save me if I jumped off the temple, what would be the purpose of that? Why would I want to be spectacular? The way that Jesus was going to be amazing was a very different way. When I think of Jesus being amazing in the world, it's that image of Jesus you know, taking off his outer garment and taking a towel. And what did he do? He washed the feet of the disciples. He knelt down and washed dirty feet. Jesus is known to us as a servant, not as someone who's amazing and spectacular. So the antidote for the temptation to be amazing in ministry and in loving our neighbors is humility and service. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the rhythm of the kingdom of God. Lay down a life, and that life will be resurrected. Give a talent or a gift, and it will be blessed and multiplied, raised. So humility and service, and the commitment to not test God, excuse me, to let God work, to trust God's promises. I had a conversation uh, on the phone with one of our members this week. And uh, it was after a meeting, a, a business meeting that we had up here. And um, <clears throat> and I, I called him and we were just talking through some things. And I said, you know, you know what makes First Method of Sweetwater wonderful and amazing? You know what makes any congregation good and beautiful to the world? And he, he started, of, he was like, no, what? I said, well, it's it's people like you. And the reason is because you're a servant and you display this kind of service in the community and in our community. And that's how the world knows the beauty and the amazing things about Jesus is through our service. Sometimes it's slower than we would like. We don't always see the immediate results that we would hope for. But as long as we serve and as long as we are faithful, and as long as we walk into the deal with humility, we have these promises from God that we will not be disappointed. That when we lay our lives down, when a kernel of wheat falls into the ground, and it first dies, there will later be a harvest. This is the rhythm. This is the promise. And so uh, later on, when we do a baptism in the next service, I'm going to read Psalm 91. And we're going to talk about holding on to the promises of God and what that means, that in baptism, we are sort of exchanging the name of Jesus. We're offering the name of Jesus and saying, I believe in Christ. And in return, Christ is marking us with a name, with an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. It's our gift, our way of being in the world that doesn't require us to be spectacular doesn't require us to be powerful doesn't require us to fix everything but allows us to trust God and to be transformed to go into those hard places and face the brokenness face our own brokenness and face the brokenness of the world with confidence that doesn't come from having it all together but a confidence that comes from knowing that God is able that he is faithful that he is the one who makes the promise, And we can count on to make good on that promise. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.